Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to Breaking Down Bad Books, a podcast analysing trashy bestsellers from a literary perspective. And today we're looking at chapters 87, 88, 89, 90, 91 and 92 of The Da Vinci Code. So where we left off, Royal historian Lee Teabing has pulled the wool over everyone's eyes and he's created this little stunt distraction at the Temple Church in London where he's effectively kidnapped himself, but also his manservant Remy has been outed as being a servant of the teacher. And so Lee was acting like that that's crazy, but he's secretly like, good job, Remy. But also, no, he's actually mad at Remy for showing his face. But this is all presumed. We don't know any of this yet. That's just what we're putting together. Um, And so then Robert and Sophie, now they're left on their own. And some boy who was vacuuming the church, he's also had to run off and he pissed his pants. So um, that's where we're at. (laughs) And I'll just remind everyone that on the Patreon at patreon.com slash breaking down bad books, we're digging in deep to Fifty Shades Freed. I believe in the next few days, I'll be dropping episode one covering chapter one of Fifty Shades Free onto the public feed just to give you all a little bit of a taste. If you want to access the rest of the season, it's just $3 a month through Patreon and there's new episodes every Friday. Okay, so chapter 87 of The Da Vinci Code, we're back with Lieutenant Colette, who's at the Chateau Villette doing shit all. He had asked Interpol to dig up dirt on Andre Vernet, but he's bummed because Andre Vernet is a model citizen. They haven't got any dirt on him. He's even looked at all his credit card statements and he just bought lots of nice classical CDs. (laughs) It says his credit card records showed a penchant for art books, expensive wine and classical CDs. God, what a bore. (laughs) I mean, I do love books and wine, but CDs, okay. And so Colette, he's like, oh, well, that's clearly not a supervillain. If he's listening to classical music on a CD, a compact disc, then there's no way that he's behind all of this. And he's like, oh, well, (laughs) he just gets over his suspicions that Vernet helped them break out of the bank, which he did. And the only red flag tonight from Interpol had been a set of fingerprints that belonged to Teabing's servant. They just call him a servant, not a manservant. So that's nice. So apparently Remy is wanted for petty crime. They say nothing serious. Looks like he got kicked out of university for rewiring phone jacks to get free service. Oh my goodness. Later did some petty theft, breaking and entering. Oh, and then he skipped out on a hospital bill once for an emergency tracheotomy, which does sound a bit more serious than rewiring phone jacks, but they're like, meh. And so the examiner 
who said emergency tracheotomy. He go, he, he chuckles and he says, <laughs> peanut allergy. Don't know why that's funny. But then because Dan Brown thinks that we, the audience, are fucking stupid, he says, ah, yes, Colette nodded, recalling a police investigation into a restaurant that had failed to notate on its menu that the chili recipe contained peanut oil. An unsuspecting patron had died of anaphylactic shock at the table after a single bite. Thank you for explaining what a peanut allergy is, Dan. I would never have ever picked up on that. And it's so funny that Colette only knows about peanut allergies from this one incident. And, and why is that funny to this random fingerprint inspector person? And I do believe coming up soon, Remy's going to die. I think Tabing's going to kill him with a, probably peanut oil or something. So that's why we're getting the big giant explanation about what a peanut allergy is. But like, you know what? Like, yeah, explain to me about religious symbology when it comes to the grail. Sure, I'll hate it, but explain it to me. You don't need to explain peanut allergies. I get it. You know, just the word allergy sort of sums it up. And so then the examiner, still looking amused, he says, Remy's probably a live-in here to avoid getting picked up. So they're implying Remy is on the run from the law and hiding out at Teeming's mansion because of the rewiring of the phone jacks to get free service and for not paying for an emergency tracheotomy. (laughs) I mean, I don't know if the police are really hunting him down that strongly. Bezu Fash is more worried about arresting and imprisoning Americans rather than uh, people who are French. So maybe Remy didn't have to worry, but they're like, ha ha, that's why he's living with an old British historian because he doesn't want to get nabbed for that phone jack rewiring. So then one of the other cops bursts in and he says, hey, we found something in the barn. And they're like, oh no, a body. And he goes, nah, something more unexpected. So Colette's like, all right, well, I'm not doing anything else here. So I may as well go and check it out. So they go into the barn, which is where he stored all of his fancy cars. And it says, as they entered the musty cavernous space, (laughs) I don't know if it's that big, the agent motioned toward the center of the room where a wooden ladder now ascended high into the rafters. And Colette goes, that ladder wasn't there earlier. And he's like, yeah, no, I I found it. And I put it up so we could check out the loft area. Like good eyes, Colette, good eyes. So Colette's looking at the ladder up to the hayloft and he's thinking, mm, someone goes up there regularly. Like who, who would be doing that? Because they think the ladder's well-worn. I don't know how they can tell. He says the rungs of the ladder were worn and muddy. So that means it's in regular use. I don't, I don't know. Um, and so he's like, wow, someone must go up there. And it's like, well, it's, it's not teething. So it must be Remy. And then someone from up the top says, you'll want to see this Lieutenant. And so Colette's like, fine. All right, I'll go up the ladder. So Colette gets up there and he's like, what the hell? And nestled against the far wall sat an elaborate computer workstation, two tower CPUs, a flat screen video monitor with speakers, an array of hard drives and a multi-channel audio console that appeared to have its own filtered power supply. But how, <laughs> how does he recognize all of that varied equipment? And he thinks, why in the world would anyone work all the way up here? Okay. And so someone says, it's a listening post. And he's like, what? Surveillance? And they go, yep. And then he looks around at all these electronic parts, manuals, tools, wires, soldering irons, and other electronic equipment. And so the agent says, someone clearly knows what he's doing. Why are they saying someone? It's Remy. Who else is living at this house with Remy and Teabing? But also, it's not Remy on his own because how could he afford all of this high-tech mumbo-jumbo gadgetry? So clearly, Teabing's in on it, right? That's what we should all be thinking from this point in time, that 
Teabing and Remy have set up this surveillance nest in the barn with Teabing's money and Remy goes up and does all the work because it's only a ladder. Am I Inspector Poirot right now? Like, why are they not figuring that out? No one's breaking into the barn and doing this and they're like, someone's up to something. (laughs) We know who's up to stuff. So I say someone clearly knows what he's doing. A lot of this gear is as sophisticated as our own equipment. Miniature microphones, photoelectric recharging cells, high capacity RAM chips. He's even got some of those new nano drives. So yeah, expensive, right? So teaming. And clearly Dan Brown just Googled a list of buzzwords and jargon for, for this sort of thing because he's just throwing them all in. Someone says, this base is a high capacity hard disk audio recording system with rechargeable battery. <laughs> Why do we need to know the battery is rechargeable? <laughs> that strip of foil at the end of the wire is a combination microphone and photoelectronic recharging cell. Okay, now he's just <laughs> reusing the jargon because I've heard photoelectronic recharging cell like three times now. And Colette's like, ah, yes, a photoelectronic recharging cell. <laughs> he says, Colette knew them well. These foil-like photocell microphones had been an enormous breakthrough a few years back. Okay, so now he's recalling a previous case to explain why he has the knowledge about the photoelectronic recharging cells. Can we all just move past the photoelectronic recharging cells, please? Basically, he's bugging people. Like, dial back the jargon and just say... Teabing and Remy have been bugging people. But we get the whole explanation of how bugs work. Okay, so the agent's like, it's a simple radio wave with a small antenna on the roof. And Colette knew that these recording systems were generally placed in offices and their voice activated to save on hard disk space. And they record snippets of conversation throughout the day. And then they transmit a compressed audio file at night to avoid detection. After transmission, the hard drive erases itself and prepares to do it all over again the next day. Well, Colette, smarter than I thought you were. You figured that one out. And then he's looking around at all of the audio cassette tapes. Cassette tapes. What, what year am I in? All, a wall full of cassette tapes and they're all labelled. And he thinks, someone has been very busy. Someone? Someone? Am I being punked? These detectives are doing no detecting. And so he says, do you know who was being targeted by the bugs? And someone goes, well, Lieutenant, it's the strangest thing, dot, 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 end of chapter. All right, so we'll pick up on that mystery later. I'm sure sure we're all in suspense. So for chapter 88, where with Langdon and Sophie, they're going into the temple tube station and they're dashing deep into the grimy labyrinth of tunnels and platforms. I don't don't know if it's that dirty. I actually thought the tube system was quite nice when I visited London, but apparently it's a hovel. And so Langdon's thinking that Remy's involvement had been a shock, yet it also made sense. He thinks whoever was pursuing the grail has recruited someone on the inside. They went to Teabing, same as me. He's like, yeah, can't fault their logic. He says throughout history, those who held knowledge of the grail had always been magnets for thieves and scholars alike. (laughs) So dramatic. So Langdon's feeling guilty about bringing Teabing in, even though Teabing had been a target all along. He's like, oh shoot, we've got to go and rescue Teabing. So they go to the westbound district and circle line platform. Important for us to know that. Sophie finds a payphone. I didn't know payphones were in the tube, but okay, there's a payphone. And so she calls the police and he's like, oh, Remy told us not to. And she's like, what? (laughs) She's like, Langdon, of course I'm going to call the fucking police. What what are you thinking? Although you guys are kind of fugitives. So I do sort of see the point in maybe not calling the police. They might be aware that you two have fled France uh, and you're wanted for four murders. 
But Sophie says the best way to help Lee is to involve the London authorities immediately. Trust me. And Langdon's like, uh, whatever. He thinks Remy will keep T being alive, at least until they find the tomb. And then they decipher the orb reference. But then after that, mm, they might kill him. And so he thinks, well, we have to find the tomb first. So while Sophie's gonna call the cops, Langdon's thinking about how they need to go to King's College because, okay. King's College was renowned for its electronic theological database. The ultimate research tool, Langdon had heard, instant answers to any religious historical question. So it's, so it's Google. <laughs> it's, it's, it's Google. It says he wondered what the database would have to say about a knight a pope interred. I mean, I don't think the database is sentient. I don't think it would have an opinion on it. <laughs> so Sophie gets on the phones and she says, hey guys, I'm reporting a kidnapping. And they say, what's your name? And she goes, Agent Sophie Nouveau with the French Judicial Police. I probably wouldn't have given a name again because I'm a fugitive. I would have said, oh, it's, it's Beth. <laughs> I would have said, yeah, it's Beth. What's up? So the operator's like, I'll get a detective for you. And then while she's on hold, Sophie's thinking, will they even believe me? She says, wondering if the police would even believe her description of Teabing's captors, a man in a tuxedo. <laughs> okay, is that that random? And then she thinks, Remy's partnered with an albino monk. Impossible to miss. Impossible to miss. And yet Silas has been running all around Paris, murdering four different people at four different locations. And he was never caught. <laughs> it's impossible to miss this hulking albino monk. And yet he's been slithering around undetected. And then she's thinking, well, they have a hostage, so they can't take public transportation. And she's like, well, how many Jaguar stretch limos could there be in London? She's like, they must be able to find them. So then someone comes on the line and it's Fash. And he's like, Agent Nouveau. And she's like, rot row. And he goes, where the hell are you? And Sophie's speechless. She's like, what? She's so stunned that they figured out that they're in London. And she thinks Captain Fash had apparently requested the London police dispatcher alert him if Sophie called in. Yeah, not crazy to do that. Not crazy at all. But shocking me, Fash says, look, I made a terrible mistake tonight. I know Robert Langdon is innocent. All charges against him have been dropped. Either way, both of you are in danger. You need to come in. Okay, so Fash has had a little turnaround. He could just be saying that to Sophie, but we'll just take his word for it. And Sophie's like, wah? And Thash goes, and also, you didn't tell me that Jacques Sunier was your granddad. He's like, oh, if only you'd told me. And he says, look, I'm going to overlook your insubordination last night on account of the emotional stress you must be under. But, you know, go to police headquarters. And then she, she's not fallen for it, I guess. Because she's like, are you tracing this call, Captain? And it's like, obviously, obviously. Hang up, Sophie. But Fash says, look, yeah, we're in damage control now. I made errors in judgment last night. And if those errors result in the deaths of an American professor and a DCPJ cryptologist, my career will be over. I've been trying to pull you back into safety for the last several hours. I don't know about that. Several hours? I don't know about that. So then the train's coming. So she goes, look, the man you want is Remy Legludek. They've stopped calling him the manservant, which is nice. And she's like, he's just kidnapped Teabing inside the temple church. And Fash is like, Hey, do not discuss this on an open line. You're at a fucking phone booth at the tube station. Shut up. But Sophie just hangs up on him. She's like, nah, she hangs up on him and they dash onto the train. End of that chapter. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And then we go to chapter 89, and we're back in Teabing's Hawker. You could just say plain, but no, Dan Brown insists on saying the brand names of everything. So we're back in the Hawker and we're with Bezu Fash and he's having a drink again. He's, he's hitting the sauce super hard this morning and he's inspecting the box and the old cryptex. And he's like, what the fuck is this? He has no idea. But then he gets a call from the DCPJ switchboard and this guy's like, hey, look, this person from the Depository Bank of Zurich is calling you nonstop. I keep saying you're busy but they want to talk to you. Can I let them through? And Fash is like, oh, yeah, whatever. So Fash is like, oh, hi, Monsieur Vernet. Sorry I didn't call you earlier, but I've been busy. He says, the name of your bank hasn't appeared in the media, so what's your concern? And Vernet starts telling him about how oh, he heard on the radio that they were criminals, so he pulled over and demanded the box back, but they attacked him and stole the truck. Not buying that at all because you knew they were criminals back when you were at the bank. And Fash is like, you care about a wooden box? He's like, really? And Vernet's like, no, no, I just don't want our bank to be known for having a bank robbery. Like, excuse me for doing my job. And yeah, maybe you shouldn't have helped them escape, Vernet. This is on you. I have no sympathy for you, you douchebag. He helped them escape and now it's everyone else's fault and everyone else's problem to fix. Like, far out. They duped ya, bud. They duped ya good. And also she had the key and she knew the code. So relax. And Fash even says, well, if they had the password and the key, like, what makes you think they stole it? And Vernet goes, well, they murdered people. The key and password were obviously ill-gotten. I don't know why we're bothering with this storyline. I feel like we all sort of moved on from Vernet as soon as they left him on the road in that prostitute park. Like, 
ever since then, like, I, I haven't thought about him. And yet he keeps coming up. He keeps doing the phone tree rounds, calling everyone. I don't care. And Fash, he's also over it because he goes, look, Verna, like, ugh. He says, my men have done some checking into your background and your interests. You are obviously a man of great culture and refinement because of the books and the wine and the CDs. <laughs> and he says, and look, just so you know, your box, it's fine. Your bank's reputation, they're in the safest of hands. Don't worry. And that's the end of the chapter. What a pointless fucking chapter. So then we go to chapter 90 and we're back in the hayloft at the Chateau Villette. And Colette's like, Wow. This computer system is eavesdropping on all of these locations and the agent's like, yep, looks like the data has been collected for over a year now. So T-Bing and Remy have been bugging five separate people. So Colbert Sustac, chairman of something something, Jean Chaffet, curator of the Musée de Jeux de Pont, Edouard Deschroches, uh, butchered that one, senior archivist at the Mitterrand Library, Jacques Sounier, curator, Musée de Louvre, and Michel Breton, head of DAS French Intelligence. Okay, so the agent is like, well, the fourth one's a bit concerning, talking about Jacques Sounier. And Colette's like, yep, totally. They know the other three are dead. So Silas went on a killing spree. I'm assuming the other three are the center show that he killed, and they're only worried about Jacques Sounier. <laughs> ah, mm. Maybe have a working list on your notes app in your phone that you update of all the murder victims that you're currently investigating. Maybe do that because they seem to have forgotten those three people. And also the fifth one, the head of the DAS French intelligence. I guess that's just for T-Bing's awareness. I don't really think that person's in the Priory of Scion. Also, I need to point out that it says head of DAS and then in brackets, it says French intelligence. So I think that's just Dan Brown explaining what DAS is to us. I don't think that's actually written down. (laughs) Or if it is written down on all of these labels, why is Remy, a a French person, explaining what the DAS is in English? And so the agent plays a voice recording of Sonia's office where Colette was and it's of Colette talking. And he's like, what? That was being bugged all this time? And the agent's like, yeah, a lot of our Louvre investigation tonight would have been audible if someone had been interested. And so Colette's like, have you sent anyone in to sweep for the bug? And he goes, no need. I know exactly where it is because there's also like written down on a piece of paper, (laughs) a diagram of that night, that night figurine that's on Sonia's desk. And he's like, oh yeah, it's a bug. Why Remy is leaving around his schematic of how he's going to bug a night statue. Like, do you want to be caught after the fact? Uh, Also, how did did they just send Sonia this night figurine being like, oh, this would be nice to put on your desk. And Sonia's a dummy that's just like, great, I'll use it as a paperweight, like without checking that it's bugged, even though you're the head of a secret society that's existed for hundreds of years. Wouldn't you be a little bit more suspicious? Because that must have happened or else did T-Bing visit Sonia at the Louvre and just like bug it when he wasn't looking? What? How, how did this bugging come about? Seems a little bit too convenient to me. Oh, and that's the, and that's the chapter. <laughs> it just ends with Colette being like, wow, the notes were in French and appeared to be ideas outlining how best to insert a listening device into the night. Oh, cliffhanger. <laughs> we don't care. Oh, Dan Brown, he's just really going down into the detail, isn't he? Okay, so then we go to chapter 91. And we're with Silas 
and he's in the parked Jaguar limousine. <laughs> so, yeah, you could just say limousine, but no, it's a Jaguar. So Remy, he's tying up T-Bing in the back. I guess this is previously on. This isn't happening right now, obviously, because Sophie have already escaped and they're on the tube. And now these three losers are still at the Temple Church. So did he did he shuffle the chapters around? <sighs> I don't know. Anyway, so T-Bing's in the back. Remy and Silas, they're in the front. And Silas could hear T-Bing's muffled cries from the back. And Remy's shouting at T-Bing, being like, shut up. <laughs> and then he presses a button and raises the partition behind him, which is sketchy. If I was Silas, I'd be like, no, let's, let's have eyes on our hostage. Like, we don't need to raise the privacy partition when we're the ones kidnapping him. And then it says minutes later, as the Jaguar <laughs> is going through the streets of London, Silas's phone rings and it's the teacher. So clearly it's just taping in the back. Oh, Silas is getting so played. And the teacher's like, oh, Silas, I'm relieved to hear your voice. That means you're safe. Although it says the teacher's familiar French accent said. So T-Bing's putting on an accent for Silas's benefit. And Silas goes, oh, guess what? I've got the keystone. And now again, T-Bing, because he loves theatrics. He's got to be like, what? Wow, that's brand new information. He says, that's superb news. So then they have a chat. It's so silly. It's just throwing us off the scent is what it is. I I don't know why it's happening logically, but it's to throw the reader off the scent because then the teacher, he's like, oh, what's been happening with this Remy guy? Is he still with you? And Silas is like, yep, Remy freed me. And so then T-Bing's like, yes, sorry about um, having to leave you in captivity for so long. It's it's all unnecessary theatrics. So we cut to it and T-Bing's like, hey, Silas, I want Remy to bring me the keystone. And Silas is like, oh, Remy, the teacher favors Remy. Even Silas is like, oh, fucking Remy. But the teacher says, oh no, don't, don't get me wrong. Like I'd rather get it from you. Like I much prefer you. You're like a man of God, not a criminal. Cause the teacher knows about Remy not paying for that emergency tracheotomy. He's like, oh God, no, I hate Remy. What you need to know is I need Remy to come to me with a keystone so I can deal with him. He made a grave mistake that has put our entire mission at risk. We can't be deterred from our goal. You get my gist? So basically he's saying, I'm going to kill Remy, which is very brave of T-Bing to be saying that to Silas on the phone when Remy's sitting right next to Silas. I don't know how quiet the sound is on his phone, but if I were Remy, I'd be trying to listen in and I'd be, I'd be like, wait, what? <laughs> Did he just say dispose of Remy? Is that what I heard? <laughs> and like, how does he know he's not on speaker? <laughs> so funny. Uh, and Silas is thinking, oh, that's a bit rough. Like. Remy did what he had to do. He saved the keystone, but oh, if you need to kill him, go for it. So the teacher tells Silas to go and hang out at the Opus Day headquarters in London. Hang out there. He'll call him when he's finished killing Remy. And Silas is like, oh, well, you're in London, are you? And he's like, yeah, closer than you think. <laughs> he doesn't actually say that. Um, and so then the teacher's like, okay, put me on to Remy. So Silas hands the phone to Remy, sensing it might be the last call Remy ever took. And then as Remy takes the phone, he's thinking, oh, that poor twisted monk, no idea what's waiting for him. No idea that he's going to be disposed of now that he's served his purpose. Oof. He thinks the teacher used you, Silas, and your bishop is a pawn, which is a great little play on words from Remy. So it's kind of funny that they both think the other one's going to get killed by the teacher. Hilarious. 
So the teacher says to Remy, listen carefully, take Silas to the Opus Day residence hall and drop him off a few streets away, then drive to St. James's Park. It is adjacent to Parliament in Big Ben, you know, just in case you want to do some sightseeing while you're there. Maybe go up into the London Eye, even though it reminds Langdon of a sarcophagus. Maybe just, yeah, do a spot of touristing uh, and I'll meet you there. So that's the end of that chapter. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. We're just setting up how the teacher's going to kill Remy, presumably with a peanut oil type substance, because I don't know if you guys know this, but um, people can actually die if they're allergic to peanuts. Uh, I remember seeing a case once, actually. Super tragic, but the restaurant, they didn't announce on their um, menu that there was peanut in the chili oil and someone died. Yeah, that, I know. Not many, not many people know this, but that's how I know that. Um, so yeah, that's going to happen eventually. Okay, we go to chapter 92 and we're at the King's College. You know, say, you, say what you want about the tube. It may be grimy, it may be convoluted and confusing and dirty, but they got there pretty quickly. So they're at the King's College and we've got to get a whole fucking backstory on the King's College. Oh, oh. I can see why for the movie, they just were on a bus and borrowed some kid's internet enabled phone and they just Googled it. But for the book, we're going to the library to search the theological database. And we're hearing every fucking thing about the college and about the library and about how databases work. So King's College, established by King George IV in 1829, houses its Department of Theology and Religious Studies adjacent to Parliament on property granted by the Crown. King's College Religion Department boasts not only 150 years experience in teaching and research, but the 1982 establishment of the Research Institute in Systematic Theology, which possesses one of the most complete and electronically advanced religious research libraries in the world. Use less words. That, that drained me just to read it out loud. I've aged 18 years just reading about the King's College database at the Theology Library. Fuck, I'm dead. But I guess the one little nugget of import there is that they're close to Parliament, which is also where Silas, Remy and Teabing are heading to. So just as we split up our characters, they're converging again. But first we we gotta do the research. So they go into the library. It's a huge room. And on the far side of the room, a reference librarian was just pouring a pot of tea and settling in for her day of work. Oh, this poor doll doesn't know what's ahead of her. She's just trying to enjoy a cup of tea, clocking on. Oh, now she's got to put up with Langdon. And also kind of a stereotype with the cup of tea. Um, okay, but she's like, oh, hi, can I help you guys with anything? And Langdon's like, yeah, my name is. And she goes, yeah, Robert Langdon, I know who you are. And Robert's like, oh no, has Fash put out an alert on the English news? And she's like, no, yeah, like, I... I'm a person who watches the news regularly. You were just at the Vatican. You had a whole adventure that was wildly publicized when the Pope died and they were electing a new Pope. Like you, you were hanging off of helicopters. Yeah, I know who you are. And he's like, well, all right, fame. 15 minutes of fame. How about that? He thinks, then again, if anyone on earth were going to recognize his face, it would be a librarian in a religious studies reference facility. Also, oh, so he's got tickets on himself. He actually thinks it's because of his his work that he's been recognized. No, it's because you were gallivanting around the Vatican just like four months ago. And so this librarian, her name is Pamela Getham. Getham. Go get him, Pamela. My name's Getham. And what I do is I get him. <laughs> I just love that name. I'm Pamela Getham. I'm the librarian at the Religious Studies Reference Facility at the King's College Religion Department. Specifically, they research, institute, and systematic theology. Why, why do they need that, by the way? I, I feel like there's a lot of talk about theology. It's not that important. Put all that money and effort and books into 
securing something important, guys. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, no, we really need all of these resources on systematic theology. Oh. I feel like we're wasting Go Get Em's talents. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, so Go Get Em, she's like, hey, yeah, nice to meet you. And Langdon's like, yep, this is my friend, Sophie Niveau. And she's like, oh, wow. Okay. So didn't know you were just going to pop by this morning. And he's like, yeah, neither, but I need a spot of info and go get them. She's like, okay, well, normally our services are by petition and appointment only. So, and Langdon's like, babe, like, oh. he's like, listen, we've come unannounced. My friends, Lee Teabing, don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he's a British Royal historian. He's actually a knight you know, um, and go get him's like, yeah, heavens. Yes. I know Lee Teabing. She says, what a character fanatical <laughs> go get him is so fun. She says, every time he comes in, it's always the same search strings. Grail, grail, grail. I swear that man will die before he gives up on that quest. And then she winks and she says, time and money afford one such lovely luxuries. Wouldn't you say a regular Don Quixote, that one. Okay. <laughs> Robert just said, I'm friends with Lee Teabing. And then she went on a tight five making fun of Teabing, <laughs> just tearing him to shreds with a bloody roast. Go get him was doing a reading challenge from Drag Race. The library is open on Lee Teabing. And Robert's like, yeah, ha ha ha. And Sophie's like, yep, any chance you can help us out. And so Go Get Him looks around the library and it's empty. Surprise, surprise. Who would have thought that the research facility for systematic theology is empty <laughs> on a Thursday morning? Like, wow. <laughs> Not shocked there. And so she's like, it's not too busy. I'll help you guys out. What do you want? I'll go get them. And so Langdon says, we're trying to find a tomb in London. And again, sassy get them. She's like, a tomb in London, huh? Well, we've got about 20,000 of them. Can you be more specific? I love that she just knows that there's 20,000 tombs in London just off the top of her head. And so he's like, oh, it's a tomb of a knight. We don't have a name. And she's like, all right, that, that tightens the net substantially, much less common. And they're like, okay, we don't need the commentary on everything. Go get them. Like, you know, we can just tell you things and you can just type it in your little computer and we can move on. But she's, she's got to do the tight five on everything. So Sophie slips her the first two lines of the poem because apparently they didn't want to give her the full poem because they didn't want her to know all of their business. And you could just say that, but no... Sophie goes into this long explanation of what compartmentalized cryptography is, which is when you're splitting up some sort of code to different cryptographers. So at the end, once they're all finished, none of them will know the full code. Who cares? Who cares? You're at a fucking library for systematic theology. But we get this whole explanation of compartmentalized cryptography to explain why they just give the first two lines of the poem. Jesus Christ. Okay. So she's like, okay, all right, I'll try and go get them. She's looking at it and she's like, in London lies a knight, a pope interred, his labor's fruit, a holy wrath incurred. And she's like, oh, what's this? Some kind of Harvard scavenger hunt. (laughs) And Langdon's like, yes, please just get to it. We do not need the routine and go get him. She paused feeling she was not getting the whole story. Yeah, nah, shit. Go get him. What do you mean feeling you're not getting the whole story? They've told you shit all. Of course, you're not getting the whole story. But she's like, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued. I'll help him out. So she goes, according to this rhyme, a knight did something that incurred displeasure with God. And yet a Pope was kind enough to bury him in London. Um, yes, we, we, we've all figured that out. Get him. And Langdon's like, yes, he's, he's trying to be polite. He goes, uh-huh. Um, does it ring any bells? And go get him. She's like, nah, actually, but let me see what I can pull up in the database. Now, God, Robert's probably like this fucking bitch. This fucking tea drinking bitch is dragging it out. 
Okay, so I feel like we don't have enough backstory about the King's College Research Institute and Systematic Theology, so then we, we get a whole description of the database system. Oh my freaking lordy Jesus. Here we go. Okay, over the past two decades, King's College Research Institute and Systematic Theology had used optical character recognition software in unison with linguistic translation devices to digitise and catalogue an enormous collection of texts. Encyclopedias of religion, religious biographies, sacred scriptures in dozens of languages, histories, Vatican letters, diaries of clerics, anything at all that qualified as writings on human spirituality. Because the massive collection was now in the forms of bits and bytes rather than physical pages, the data was infinitely more accessible. Okay, you could just say you put it on the internet. Oh yeah, we digitised all our texts. Okay, got it. Got it. In 2006, did we not know what computers were? I feel like we did, but maybe we didn't. Maybe we, maybe they were a new thing. Maybe Wikipedia was only just coming around because the way Dan Brown's talking about internet and devices, it's just so mind boggling. Okay, okay, so go get them. She types in London, Knight and Pope. She says, to begin, we'll just run a straight Boolean with a few obvious keywords and see what happens. Like, okay, thanks for explaining that, go get them. So as she clicked the search button, she could feel the hum of the massive mainframe downstairs, scanning data at a rate of 500 megabytes per second. And she says, I'm asking the system to show us any documents whose complete text contains all three of those keywords. Okay. I, I know what a Google search is. I, are you shitting me? So a bunch of shit pops up, including a lot of books by Alexander Pope, a Pope, but they don't pick up on that yet. They, they skim past that one. And they're like, nah, we're going to need to narrow the search term. So (laughs) the computer, by calculating the current number of hits and multiplying the percentage of the database left to search, provided a rough guess of how much information would be found. This particular search looked like it was going to return an obscenely large amount of data. Estimated number of total hits, 2,692. Like, okay, thank you. This was all relevant information for me. And go get them. She's like, this isn't going to work. We need to refine the parameters. Dan Brown is dragging out a fucking Google search over six pages. I I can't believe it. I remember reading this book when I was a teenager and thinking it was good. And so she says to them, is this all the information that you have regarding the tomb? There's nothing else to go on. And Langdon and Sophie share a look and she's thinking, this is no scavenger hunt. Go Getem had heard the whisperings of Robert Langdon's experience in Rome last year. She'd heard whisperings of it. You saw it on the fucking news. This American had been granted access to the most secure library on earth, the Vatican's secret archives. And it says Getem had been a librarian long enough to know the most common reason people came to London to look for knights was the grail. What? So she's, she's all over it. Apparently she gets pestered like once a day with some tourists being like, oh, I'm here to find the Holy Grail. Can you please point me in the right direction? And she says, she says, look guys, I think you're here on a grail quest. And they're like, um, and she's like, look, my friends, this library is a base camp for all grail seekers. <laughs> is it? How many grail seekers are out there? How many? Get a job. What? And she was like, yeah, every time I search for Lee Teabing and for all of these grail seekers, I run searches for the Rose, Mary Magdalene, Sangreal, Prior of Sion. Everyone loves a conspiracy, but I need more information. And so Sophie's like, oh, here, here's everything we know. So she writes down two more lines of the poem. So we get the whole fucking reasoning about compartmentalized cryptography, a whole bloody page explaining the reasons for just giving her the two lines. And now we get, now we're given go get them all four lines. I just, 
So go get him reads. You seek the orb that ought be on his tomb. It speaks of rosy flesh and seeded womb. And she's like, ha ha. And she gives an inward smile. And she goes, it's the grail. I knew it. She notes the references to the rose and her seeded womb. And she's like, yep, seeded womb. Obviously, that's Mary Magdalene. So she asks a few more questions, but Langdon's like, go get him. Can you just go get him and get him? And she's like, all right, I'll, I'll play along. She says, if this is a grail related issue, we should cross reference against grail keywords. I'll add a proximity parameter and remove the title waiting. That will limit our hits only to those instances of textual keywords that occur near a grail related word. <sighs> Again, in the movie, they just Googled it on a bus. <laughs> could, we, could we not have done that in the book? Oh my goodness gracious me. I feel like I'm back at uni. <sighs> so she searches for Knight London Pope tomb within a hundred word proximity of Grail Rose Sangreal Chalice. And Sophie's like, how long is this going to take? And she goes, mm, a few hundred terabytes with multiple cross-referencing fields. <laughs> a mere 15 minutes. A mere 15 minutes. She's bragging about how quick that is. I don't think that's that quick. I don't think that's that quick at all. And go get him. She sensed that this sounded like an eternity to them. So she's like, well, do you want a cup of tea then? Lee always loved my tea. And that's the end of the chapter. Is she fucking Lee teabing? <laughs> Lee always loved my tea. I think she's Lee's little fag hag in London, perhaps. I don't know. I don't know. Okay, well, that's that. I'm not, I'm, I refuse to do another chapter because I don't want anything else explained to me. Dan Brown, the great mansplainer. I can't stand it. From peanut allergies to bugging equipment to databases. He's really broken down everything for us this week. Just really every little fucking thing. Surprised he didn't explain how the tube works. Oh, actually, I don't think he knows how the tube works. Okay, I'll see you guys next week. Bye. Send your burning thoughts, frustrations, and grievances on this latest chapter of this shitty book to breakingdownpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at podbreakingdown and Instagram at breakingdownbadbooks. You can visit www.breakingdownbadbooks.com for all the listen links, contact information, merch, and more. To support the show on Patreon and gain access to exclusive ad-free bonus episodes, visit patreon.com slash breakingdownbadbooks. Ratings and reviews on your preferred podcast platform are also a fun, free way to support the show. Breaking Down Bad Books is hosted by me, Nathan Brown, who you can follow on Instagram and Twitter at NathanBrown90. Thanks for listening and happy reading. 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.